Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here with you. Uh, um, I'm just glad to be out of Chicago at this time of year <laughs> and <laughs> be jealous of the amazing weather you have here at the end of February, early March. Um, I'm, I'm thankful. Um, again, it was, it was kind of coincidental, but also maybe fortuitous that we have the opportunity to look at the themes of lament um, on Ash Wednesday and as we enter into the season of Lent. Um, I did bring a few of my books. Um, my first book was called The Next Evangelicalism, and it was on Ivy Press, uh, and it talks about the changing face of American Christianity and some of the things we will need to adapt in order to address some of the issues that are changing around us. Um, so this book, I have a couple of copies in the back. Um, the book that we're going to be talking about today is Prophetic Lament. Uh, it's a commentary on the Book of Lamentations, but done through the Resonate series at University. And the intention of the Resonate series is about three or four books that have come out already on the Resonate series, is to actually examine the way the scripture speaks to culture. So the attempt of it is to be faithful in the egg right now. So that was uh, this book. And again, well, how does that text speak into our culture and the way uh, things are in the world right now? So that was uh, this book. And again, we'll be talking about that topic today. The title is Prophetic Lament. Uh, it's a commentary on Lamentations in the Resonate series. My, my most recent book uh, is on Brazos, and it's called Return to Justice. Uh, and this comes out of my, my, uh, my doctoral work at Duke University. Uh, my uh, former associate pastor, Gary Vanderpaul, uh, taught at Denver Seminary for a number of years. He did his doctorate work at uh, Boston University. And we both were looking at themes of justice in uh, evangelical circles. He was looking at it through the, th uh, the lens of global justice, so um, ministries like World Vision, uh, some of the Latino theologians that help some of our, uh, of our global justice issues. I was looking at more from domestic angle, uh, so something like CCDA, Christian Community Development Association, and John Perkins's work, as well as uh, African-American evangelicals in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, so it's six snapshots that give you kind of a historical view of the ways that evangelical Christianity, thank you very much, has engaged uh, themes of justice. Uh, and um, so this is a, a good primer on evangelical engagement with justice issues. Again, it just came out this past year. Uh, I'm currently working on a book with Mark Charles, who's actually a Native American activist, Navajo, uh, who um, actually the book was due yesterday. Uh, and we didn't quite finish, but it should be out by the end of the year. Tentative title is Truth Be Told, uh, and it deals with uh, some of the theological dysfunctions that led to the genocide of the Native American community. So I would uh, commend you to look for that book. Uh, but today we're going to talk about uh, lamentations and the need for lament in our current cultural social context. Um, now, I've been working on this. I had actually worked on this book for almost, it actually turned out to be almost 20 years. Uh, it began uh, back in 1996 when I was a church planter in Cambridge. I had served for five years uh, at MIT as a campus minister within a varsity. Uh, and if you know anything about MIT, these are some of the smartest people you're ever going to meet. Uh, just brilliant, uh, you know, perfect scores on their math and their SATs, not necessarily the verbal. Uh, but they were brilliant young men and women uh, who would understanding of the world, you know, change the world with their uh, incredible uh, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding of the world, uh, especially in, in kind of the field of technology. Um, and then along that time, I was also working with Harvard students because of being on staff with the university. You also have interaction with other campuses, including Harvard, Wellesley, uh, Boston University, Tufts University, Boston College. There's some wonderful schools in that area. And what I noticed was that these wonderful students 
who had already, uh, by being in some of these schools, achieved so much. Uh, and um, that they were not interacting well with the world around them. Uh, and that they were seeing the world through this lens of, I, I can conquer the world because I'm such a smart person. Um, and there was a, what I thought was a disconnect between the reality of the world they lived in as college students, especially as highly accomplished college students, with the world that was actually around them. So one of my uh, struggles was actually um, a lot of my students who were, on univers- who were part of InterVarsity, um, a bus would pull up every Sunday, and they lived in a very diverse neighborhood. Cambridge and Boston is an extraordinarily diverse community. A bus would pull up, and they would get on the bus, and they would be transported 30 minutes away outside of the city to go to church. And almost every one of my students was doing that. They would spend uh, half an hour to an hour on the road in a van or in a bus going to a church in the suburbs without ever considering if you walk down the street, there are many churches and communities that you're not relating to. And so my heart was actually, I needed to see, I wanted to see that connection between these extraordinarily gifted men and women who were kind of bypassing the city, bypassing the community and the world around them to kind of go to a safe place, especially in the suburban community. Uh, So that was kind of the impetus for me to start uh, Cambridge Community Fellowship Church about 20 years ago. (coughs) Excuse me. Um... And uh, we did an opening round of services. Uh, I was being, the church was being uh, sponsored financially by a church in Washington, D.C. They came up and we did a number of different kind of opening services as ceremonial to start to ser- church. Uh, but the very first full sermon series that I did uh, at this new church plant uh, was on the Book of Lamentations. Uh, and I teach church planning now as a seminary professor, and uh, we have a, a very robust church planning program in our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. Uh, and I probably would never say to any of these fledgling church planners, start with the Book of Lamentations. It is a nice user-friendly book of the Bible that would draw a lot of people into your church. It just doesn't quite work in that way. Uh, but what it did was I knew the context of ministry that we were in in Cambridge. We had these brilliant young men and women who maybe with a little bit of arrogance could say we're going to go and change our cities for God uh, without really understanding what it meant to have this brokenness before God rather than this arrogance before God. And so if I felt it was very important in the very first sermon series that I offered at this new church plan in the inner city neighborhood or church. We start off with the book of Lamentations as our key uh, text to launch our church. Um, so that was my first uh, engagement with the Book of Lamentations 20 years ago as a church planner, preaching on this. And then about six years ago now, six, seven years ago now, I was approached to potentially do a commentary um, in this series. And I said, I think I want to do Lamentations. I spent five years working through the text, uh, multiple editors. Uh, this was one of the, um, the series because it's a combination of biblical studies and theology. I had two Old Testament editors, a theology editors, and two general editors. Um, if you really want to see the embodiment of too many cooks spoil the broth, that's the example of five different editors trying to get a hand on the book. Um, so uh, I spent five years working on the book. Um, and uh, my wife always jokes, you know, you spend five years working on the book, you're going to sell about five copies. Because does anybody really want a book on Lamentations? That's not a popular book of the Bible. It's not the book that you lead off a church plant with or anything of that nature. So, um, But what I found was that the... The book of Lamentations, and in general, the genre of lament was so absent in American church life that there has to be a reintroduction. 
uh, because we're really denying ourselves an important aspect of spiritual discipline, spiritual life, when we ignore the laments. Um, I opened the book uh, with an example of worship life in America. Um, there was a study done by Denise Hopkins. She's a professor at uh, Wesley Seminary, which is a Methodist seminary. And Methodist being a little bit more in the liturgical tradition, she was looking at the six major liturgical denominations in our, in our nation right now. And that would be the Catholics, the Episcopalians, Episcopalian Anglican, um, uh, Methodists, uh, Lutherans, and I believe the UCC was in that mix. So there are about six denominations that we would identify as liturgical denominations. And these denominations are usually guided by a particular book or order of worship and order of even preaching. So what they do in the liturgical tradition is say, well, during the course of the year, these books of the Bible are what you'll preach on. During the course of the year, these passages should be read, especially in the Psalms. During the course of the year, these are some hymns that you can follow. So the liturgical tradition, the high church tradition, tends to have kind of strict guidelines on how worship is conducted in the local church. Um, what Dr. Hopkins found, however, she's a professor of Old Testament and has written extensively on the Psalms. Uh, what she found was that if you look at a typical liturgical church, even though they were assigned or told they were supposed to read a psalm that talks about suffering and lament psalm, uh, a church would typically get to that lament psalm and either change the reading or skip over it. Uh, or if there was a hymn that was more reflective of lament, they would either change the hymn or skip over it. Uh, so there was a very significant absence of lament, even though there was guidelines to say, this is what you need to worship. And yet, in many liturgical traditions in the U.S., there was a glossing over or by Glenn Pemberton, the discipline of lament in the churches. <coughs> there was a second study done by Glenn Pemberton. And he was actually looking at hymnals. Uh, Pemberton notes, and it's true, that of the 150 psalms that we have in the Bible, 60% of our psalms are psalms of celebration, uh, songs about victory, hymns about uh, triumph, uh, about how great is our God, magnificent is our God. So they're kind of praise songs that talk about victory and triumph. Uh, but what Pemberton notes is that 40% of our psalms, of the 150 psalms, are psalms of lament which talk about suffering, which talk about pain, uh, which talk about uh, the need for God to come and rescue us out of our, our suffering. Uh, what he notes, though, is that if you look at a typical Baptist and Presbyterian hymnal, 85% on average of those hymns in the Baptist Presbyterian hymnals would be songs or hymns of celebration and triumph. And only 15% of our Baptist Presbyterian hymnals would have hymns about lament and suffering. So disproportionately compared to our scriptures, underrepresenting the themes of lament and suffering. Uh, of course, that doesn't even talk about, as similar to the liturgical tradition, uh, what hymns are actually used. That's just what's in the hymnal. Uh, never mind what's actually used. So that number actually could be lower because, again, uh, the church in America and American Christianity tends to negate, gloss over, or ignore the themes of lament in our scripture. Uh, I looked at those two studies and I said, I want to do a study uh, for using the CCLI Top 100 list. Any of you all know what the CCLI Top 100 list is? CCLI stands for Christian Copyright Licensing Incorporated. It's good to know that Christian songs are incorporated. So CCLI has, a, uh, has the market on uh, any kind of song that you don't have in the hymnals, 
kind of contemporary worship songs in particular. So they actually produce um, the licensing for local churches to be able to project. Anytime you project a worship song onto a big screen, you're supposed to have a little number that says we have this permission from CCLI. If you're not doing that, you probably should be doing that. It's a copyright law. Uh, but what it does is it actually, uh, they actually keep a record of this because they need to know what small percentage of the uh, royalties need to go to these individuals who wrote these songs. So every time you sing a particular worship song, you let uh, CCLI know and the angel gets his wings or something like that, where, where you know, or a tenth of a penny goes to that individual who wrote that song. Uh, so they, they actually have a pretty good record because they have to, uh, because of the money that's being distributed to these artists who wrote these songs, justifiably, uh, they have a pretty good record of the most popular songs sung in America that uses kind of the contemporary worship genre. Uh, so they every year, actually, in August, they publish the top 100 list of the top 100 most popular contemporary worship songs used in a typical Sunday or weekend in the United States. So how many of you would say, just like in the Bible, 40% of that CCLI top 100 list is uh, songs about suffering and lament? 40%. How about 25% of our songs are songs of suffering and lament? How about 20%? How about 15%? How about... 10%? Uh, by my estimate, and I went through every word, every lyric, every song title uh, in that entire list, and I think five, maybe ten of our top 100 most popular worship songs would be considered lament. And this is my usage of the word lament in the most generous ways I could think of. The song starts off, I cry out. Yes, I'm going to count that as a lament song. The rest of the song is, I cry out for joy. No, I still need to count that as a lament song. And, and with that, uh, even with these very generous guidelines of lament, you're going to get about 5 to 10 out of our most popular songs. So what we're seeing is this tremendous misrepresentation. Um, if indeed the Psalms reflect the worship life of Israel, uh, then why is it that the lament Psalms are so... Uh, conspicuously absent in our worship life. And not just, you know, 40% to 25%, 40% to 5%, 10%. We're talking about an extreme ignoring of an important discipline and an important part of church life uh, in the Old Testament. And I, and I would argue there's a um, couple of books that have been written recently about lament in the New Testament. Uh, my, one of my colleagues, uh, when I was a doctor student at Duke, she did a phenomenal work on the laments of Jesus and how lament is not done away with in the New Testament, they actually come up in very strong ways. Uh, Rachel's Cry, um, Maglior, I think is the author. Uh, there's two authors, and, and they also talk about this lament that comes up in the New Testament. Um, so a, a, a discipline that is very prominent all throughout scriptures is a discipline that we've lost as a church in the United States. Uh, and, and I was trying to figure out, one, uh, we need to bring that discipline back because uh, scripturally speaking, we can't be ignoring 40% of the Psalms. We can't be ignoring huge percentage of what the Bible teaches us. Uh, but also I wanted to ask, what is it about the United States in particular that makes it so difficult to engage this narrative of lament? So we're going to explore those themes. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a, a background and context. Um, 
every time I study scripture, uh, when, I, when I was pastoring, uh, when I would do a sermon series, I, I wanted to make sure that our congregation understand how important it is to do a historical context of the book that you're studying, that you don't kind of just jump into it, especially a book like Lamentations, because you'll get really confused. Uh, so I always try to offer as a pastor as much of the historical context as possible to help us to get into the setting of the text. Otherwise, you're just kind of shooting in the wind about how this text applies. You have to understand what's going on in the text and the context around the text. So I'm going to offer that to you today. Uh, Lamentations chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 gives us some of the background. Uh, Verse 1 says, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. This is alluding to the context of the book of Lamentations. Most of you know the story. I don't need to go into too much detail. Israel was once a great nation as this passage indicates once full of people um, once a queen among the provinces jerusalem as the capital city benefited from that kind of flourishing of israel as a nation uh, particularly under king david who establishes jerusalem as the capital solomon who builds on that with the temple built in jerusalem so the nation of israel as a whole is flourishing and the capital city of jerusalem in particular is flourishing as a result of this blessing that god has given to israel during david and solomon's reign now you know the rest of the Bible doesn't quite testify to that in that the following kings are following after idols. They are disobedient. Israel enters into the season of disobedience. And so therefore God needs to bring punishment and judgment upon the nation of Israel. Uh, First, the northern kingdom of Israel is wiped out. Then the southern kingdom of Judah is wiped out. And the only thing left of this once great nation is actually the city of Jerusalem. And Lamentations is written pretty much right after the fall of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, which had been a city once full of people, once this vibrant capital of the promised land, capital of, you know, kind of this commerce center, military center, this amazing city uh, had uh, fallen into the great decay and decline to such a point that uh, Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians and they kind of wiped out the city. And so this is a description in verse 1 of that event where uh, she had once been a great nation and now she has a fallen nation uh, and and a city that has fallen. Lamentations chapter 1 verse 2. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her, they have become her enemies. So this movement from this once great city, once great nation to this fallen and broken nation. And the culmination of this is expressed in verse 3 of chapter 1. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. In exile, if you look at uh, uh, verse 3, exile, if you look at uh, Leviticus and other portions of scripture uh, in the Old Testament, exile is kind of the ultimate judgment upon God's people to be taken out of their promised land and sent away into exile. Uh, So what happened when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem is that the Babylonians actually were not looking at Jerusalem as their final destination. They were actually looking further south. They wanted to go and conquer Egypt. Jerusalem kind of got in the way because here's this major city on the way towards Egypt. And so they needed to conquer Jerusalem, but Jerusalem put up a fight. They actually put up the walls and said they were not going to give in to, uh, to Babylon. The Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem, essentially starved out the residents. They got a little mad and said, why were you fighting us? We're going to make sure that you can never uh, oppose us again. So they tore down the wall. They tore down the temple, took anything of value from there. Uh, they burned the fields uh, and salted them so that this uh, land, once f- uh, flowing with milk and honey, becomes essentially a, a dry and barren desert. 
so you end up with this nation and a, a capital city that represented this nation completely devastated. Now, to make matters worse, the Babylonians said, we're going to actually destroy this, not just the present, but the future of this nation. So they do, as many of you know, through the book of Daniel, they take the most able body, they take the prophets, the priests, the kings, uh, the leaders, anybody they say could potentially rebuild the city of Jerusalem and uh, Israel society. And they take them, and, and as this passage tells us, if we get to verse 3, we're stuck on one of the passages. Uh, we get to verse 3, uh, that they were sent away into exile. They were sent away into exile. So what it does is it not only destroys the nation and the capital, it destroys future hope. That they were once a great people, a people chosen by God, and now their future is very dim because anybody they deemed as potentially able to rebuild that city has been sent away into exile into Babylon. Again, we encounter Daniel and his friends there. So if, if we could put it in this way, this moment, unquestionably in the history of Israel, is probably the lowest moment you're ever going to get. You've lost your identity as a great nation. You've lost your capital city. You've lost all the symbols of what you thought made you great, such as the fall of the temple, the fall of the wall, the fall of the, all the things that you thought uh, gave you kind of special uh, 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 insight or special uh, positioning in the eyes of God. All of that is wiped out. And not only is their present reality bleak, their future prospectus is also pretty bleak because all the people who could potentially rebuild our society has been sent away into exile. So the context is probably, uh, we could argue, the lowest point in uh, Israel and the, uh, in Jerusalem's history. And that's what we encounter in slide four. Uh, what I would argue, uh, three potential options to respond to this kind of fallen uh, city. Uh, the first option is to run away and hide. We're defeated. We're, there's no hope for us. Let's just give up, run away and hide. The second option is to give in, not just give up, but give in and say, look, we lost to these people, the Babylonians. Let's just give in to them. And they're going to, they conquered us anyway. If you can't beat them, then let's join them. So to adapt the ways of the victor and do the things that the Babylonians do. That was the second option. Uh, we're, of course, going to reject those two options and say the best option for God's people at this time is to enter into a season of lament. And that's where the entire book of Lamentations offers this alternative to the first two options. But let's take a look at the first two options. The first option, both of those are found in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4 and following. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Jeremiah now is writing a letter to Babylon uh, to talk about what's happened, uh, to give them a word. Uh, the word is build houses and settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Verse 7. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Now, many urban church planners love this passage. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Please understand the context. Because almost every other time in Scripture, when you see the phrase, seek the peace, what city is associated with seek the peace? Seek the peace of Jerusalem. Almost without fail. There's one or two exceptions, but 99.9% .9 of the time in scriptures, you see the phrase, seek the peace. It is almost always Jerusalem, which makes complete sense. Why wouldn't you seek the peace of Jerusalem? 
the capital city, the city of David, the city of, of the promised land, all of that city of God's peace, all of that good stuff is associated with Jerusalem. But here you get the exception which says, not seek the peace of God's holy city, but seek the peace of Babylon, which is crazy. Right? I mean, if you're going to seek the peace of a city, you seek the peace of Jerusalem, God's city. The last thing you'll do is seek the peace of Babylon, which for them would represent everything that is wrong with the world. And that's very strong biblical imagery throughout the scriptures. Babylon represents everything that is wrong with the world. It is the center of pagan worship. It is a center of demonic activity. Uh, In the New Testament, we see this. Uh, It is Las Vegas, L.A., New York, all rolled into one. That is Babylon versus Jerusalem, which would, of course, would be Phoenix. Uh, So you end up with this image of this terrible, awful, sinful, evil city, uh, a.k.a. Babylon. And yet God says to his people, you are to seek not the peace of Jerusalem. You are to seek the peace of all places in the world, Babylon. And this would throw them in an uproar to say, what? We're not going to, you want us to seek what city's peace? He says, seek the peace of Babylon. Uh, what this points to is, as I said in, in that statement, that first statement is, even if you are finding yourself in the most wicked place imaginable, the most broken place imaginable, and there are challenge after challenge to live in a place like Babylon, God's people still do not have the option of giving up. That is never an option for God's people. We are not allowed to run away and hide simply because the world around us is difficult and it's challenging. That is not an option that the people of God have. And that is what God is speaking through Jeremiah here. You don't have the option. Now, you are in Babylon. Yes, I understand. The most wicked place on earth. Yes, I understand. You've lost your homeland. Yes, I understand. You feel you've lost your identity as God's people. No, you still are God's people, even in the most wicked place, because God's people do not have the option of giving up. Now, this challenge in Jeremiah, uh, the sad part of the reality is that in church history, particularly in the U.S., that challenge goes unheeded. So even though the scripture tells us the world around you is changing, the world around you is falling apart, the city is Babylon, you're in the city of Babylon, you still are supposed to stay and be God's people in the midst of that brokenness, the history of the church in America, the exact opposite has happened historically. So I'll give you a little bit of historical context for this. Uh, If we go to the next slide, slide number eight. Um, the early narrative, especially about urban stories, I, I'm, uh, uh, I, I teach a doctoral program in urban ministry, is one of the first things we tackle about the narrative of city life throughout American history. Uh, in the early stages of U.S. history, when you get these kind of uh, cities that are formed, particularly on the east coast of our nation, um, you get this very positive narrative about urban settings. Uh, some of you know, of course, that the first governor of Massachusetts, uh, John Winthrop, he pulls up to Massachusetts Bay. He looks over what will eventually become the great city of Boston, home of the best football team and best baseball team. Uh, uh, so uh, he's looking over the city and he writes in a, a sermon called Models of Christian Charity. He writes, I envision what? A city set on a hill. Biblical text taken straight from the book of Matthew. And he envisions the, the, the cities of the new world. Uh, the cities of the future United States, to be places that are cities set on a hill, drawing from the biblical text, the idea being that the gospel, the light of the world, is going to go forth from these urban centers in the United States. Now, um, many of the folks um, 
in the city of Boston, who would eventually form the city of Boston, take that very seriously. So if you were to go to Boston right now, one of the major streets in the city of Boston is called Beacon Street. And one of the most significant neighborhoods, important neighborhoods in the city of Boston is Beacon Hill. So this is a city that took that idea very seriously that we are going to be the light of the world, light of the gospel shining forth from these urban centers. And that narrative holds in Boston, Philadelphia, New York. And that knows those narratives hold actually for several, several centuries. The idea that these cities are going to be places where the light of the gospel goes forth uh, from these urban centers. Um, that changes in the 19th century forward because... Not because God changed his mind, but because the world around them changed. The narrative of cities as Jerusalem begins to change. Two major factors that are listed there on the bottom both have to do with immigration. The first major factor was the influx of Eastern and Southern European immigrants into these urban centers in the 19th century. Industrial Revolution, workers... Uh, famine and, and, and uh, difficult circumstances in Europe mean that there is a significant migration of Southern and Eastern Europeans into these urban centers. Most of you are familiar with that story. So you had these urban centers that had one time been filled with white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And when the cities were filled with white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, the narrative out there was these cities are a city set on a hill, Jerusalem, where the light of the gospel goes forth. Now in the 19th and into the 20th century, you start getting Eastern and Southern Europeans. These cities are no longer Jerusalems. They start being portrayed as Babylons. Why? Because Southern and Eastern Europeans are not Protestant and they're not Anglo-Saxons. They are actually more likely to be Italian Catholics. They're more likely to be Greek Orthodox or Eastern European Jews. And so these communities that have been the center for white Anglo-Saxon Protestant life all of a sudden has this huge influx of Southern and Eastern European that are, in many cases, non-Protestant uh, Southern and Eastern Europeans. Maybe the best example of this that I can think of in terms of pop culture uh, is the movie Gangs of New York. Any of you see that with... Um, uh, Scorsese is the director of Gangs of New York, very popular movie. Um, I, I got it on, I rented on DVD because I was told it's a race war in New York. And they said, you know, you write about race issues, you got to watch this movie. Oh, cool, race war in New York. Uh, so I put the movie in and I was thoroughly, thoroughly confused throughout the movie because I was told it's a race war in New York. And one of the gang leaders is uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, the whitest guy in Hollywood. And the other gang leader is Leonardo DiCaprio, the second whitest guy in Hollywood. And I'm asking the question, why is this a race war? between two of the whitest guys in Hollywood. Well, it turns out, of course, that one represents kind of the older immigrant community, which would be more of the Protestant, uh, Northern, and Western European, and then the new group that's coming in that represents more of the Southern and Eastern European uh, non-Protestant group. And there really became gangs and violence between these two groups. Uh, so that's one factor. Uh, in fact, uh, I went and uh, there's some uh, material by Robert Orsi, but then I went and looked at some of the Baptist and Presbyterian journals around this time. And it's amazing the language that comes out of these journals. Uh, let's go to the next slide. In the feverish imaginations of antebellum, anti-Catholic literary provocateurs, city neighborhoods appeared as caves of rum and Romanism. Isn't that amazing language? The cities are caves of rum and Romanism, mysterious and forbidding, a threat to democracy, Protestantism, and virtue alike. So you get this image here of this once great city, city set on a hill, Jerusalem, now being described not as Jerusalem, but as 
Babylon. The cities are now Babylon. Uh, the next slide, journalism, anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant polemics, temperance pamphlets, and ev evangelical tracts together created a luridly compelling anti-urban genre that depicted the city as the vicious destroyers of the common good of family life and individual character and counterposed the city to an idealized image of small town life. So this is the narrative that changes in the 19th and even into the 20th century. The cities are no longer Jerusalem's, but the cities are now Babylon's. Uh, there's another factor that we, uh, if we actually we might need to go back to that slide, slide number eight. Uh, and that's not just the immigration of European, new immigration of new Europeans, but what we now identify historically as the Great Migration. And the Great Migration is the movement of African Americans from the southern states to the northern states. This, of course, happens after Emancipation Proclamations, uh, Proclamation. Uh, Post-Civil War, African Americans are freed uh, from slavery. They leave the plantation. Uh, a huge percentage, it's hard to track the numbers, but anywhere to 80 to 90 percent of African Americans were probably living in the Mississippi Delta by the end of the Civil War. There's slave trade. Most of it happened in the South. The slaves are freed, and so you have this huge... Uh, uh, congregation of African Americans in, in the Mississippi Delta. Again, anywhere from 80 to 90 percent of African Americans. Um, this community, uh, post-Civil War, uh, really have, you know, what are their options? They're not going back to the plantation to work the plantation. Uh, many of them try to start their own communities, and some of you know the stories. Many of these communities, the Klan and and uh, people come and burn out their, their neighborhoods and tour, you know, uh, uh, do all sorts of crazy things to make sure that they're not able to uh, establish these communities. So the option for these communities became we need to head north, away from the south, out of the Mississippi Delta. Now, one thing to note about this community, within one generation of Emancipation Proclamation, the conversion of African Americans is, is absolutely phenomenal. Now, my area is the study of evangelism and church growth. Uh, without question, I can say that the generation post-Civil War of African Americans in the Mississippi Delta is unquestionably the most significant evangelistic effort in U.S. history. It far outstrips anything of Billy Graham, Billy Sunday, um, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, Charles Finney, um, uh, the Seeker Sensitive Movement, any of these evangelism things you can think about throughout U.S. history, it does not compare to the massive conversion of African Americans post-Civil War. Now, there's a, an Emancipation Proclamation. There's a number of factors. One is that many could not be officially Christians as slaves on the plantation. And so they were already Christians, now can officially join churches, and churches start in very large numbers post-Emancipation Proclamation. And then there are others who convert to Christianity. Again, these numbers are very hard to track. They range from anywhere to 70 to 90% of African Americans convert to Christianity within one generation post-emancipation proclamation. Again, unquestionably the most successful evangelistic effort in U.S. history. Now, it is that group, this fired-up group, Baptists, Pentecostals, Methodists, uh, holiness, these, these fired up uh, evangelical African-American Christians from the South that start moving in the great migration towards the urban centers uh, in, our, in our nation. So they move from the South, uh, Southeast and the Deep South, towards places like Baltimore, Philadelphia, and New York. 
uh, cities like Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland. Uh, these are the cities that become uh, places where African Americans move in very significant numbers during this century. That actually goes on for more than 100 years uh, post-Civil War. Well, well past into World War II, this massive migration, the great migration of African Americans to the northern uh, cities in our nation. Um, the best book on this is probably Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Suns. It's more of a secular book. She doesn't talk as much about the Christian issues, which, which is a huge gap. But if you want to learn more about the Christian elements of the Great Migration, John Gigi, G-I-G-G-I-E, uh, the book is called After Redemption. It's an excellent book that describes this amazing culture of Christianity that develops around this Great Migration to the north. Now, as I said, this is a very evangelical Christian group that moves from the south to the north. And when they get to the northern cities, they develop a very vibrant church planning program. Uh, you want to learn about the first mega churches in the U.S.? It's not Willow Creek. It's not Saddleback. It's these African-American churches in these urban centers in the north. Um, Chicago sees dozens of churches, several thousand strong. Uh, Detroit had a church of 10,000 members at a time when the city wasn't even that big. So we're talking about these megachurches. The very first megachurches in the U.S. are the African-American churches that start in these urban centers. So these are fired up Baptist, uh, Pentecostal, uh, Methodists who start these churches uh, in these urban centers in places like Chicago, Detroit. Uh, even Buffalo had a huge kind of growth of um, African-American churches. Uh, so, uh, in fact, I'll give you one quick story that illustrates the strength of African-American churches. Uh, there's one church in Chicago, uh, Progressive Baptist Church, uh, which was right smack dab in the middle of the south side of Chicago. Um, the, the city was planning to build an expressway that cut through the city, uh, uh, the Dan Ryan Expressway now. Um, and what they were going to do was they had drawn the plan so that it would cut through the church, Progressive Baptist Church. Now, the pastor with several, several thousand members in his congregation uh, and was such an influential person because he was such a, had such a large congregation, said to the city, you can't do that. This is God's property. You can't, there's no way you're going you're gonna, to uh, uh, take over God's land. And so what they said was, look, we'll tear down the building. We need the space. We'll build you a brand new building four blocks away. He says, there's no such thing as tearing down the house of God. You're just not going to do it. So what the city agreed to do, and they actually have pictures of this, they lifted the entire building. And it's about the size of this building. It's not a small building. Their uh, sanctuary seats about 1,000 people, actually a couple of thousand people now. Uh, they lifted the entire building, put it on rollers, and moved the whole building four blocks over so that they would not damage the house of God. And then they built the expressway. So if you go to Chicago now and visit the south side, uh, the, the, uh, right near where Comiskey, the new Comiskey, the new uh, Chicago White Sox home, right south of it is Progressive Baptist Church. And the building still stands. And my friend Charlie Dates, who's a Trinity grad, a PhD from Trinity, he's actually the pastor of that and is, has revitalized the church. So what we're talking about is this extremely vibrant, dynamic, uh, evangelical, revivalistic, church planning movement of African Americans moving into these urban centers. So this is not a religious argument. This is not, hey, we're getting people who are, you know, Catholics now, and I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Hey, we're getting, you know, Jewish people in our neighborhood. It's not a religious argument. It is purely a racial argument that leads to white flight. So white Protestants who are seeing black Protestants move into their neighborhood who are starting churches say our housing prices are going to drop. 
Our churches are not, you know, the same as they used to be. Our neighborhoods are not as safe. Uh, Our schools are not as good. And so what happens, as we see in the bottom line here, the well-documented phenomenon of white flight leaving the cities and moving into suburban neighborhoods. Uh, You see this not only with churches, but you actually see this with Christian colleges and seminaries as well. That's why the overwhelming majority of Christian colleges and seminaries are not in urban centers. They're trying to get back into urban centers, but they're more likely 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour outside of the city because they participated in this white flight. Again, this is not a religious issue. These are fired up evangelical Christians moving into your neighborhood. It was a pure racial issue, as in we don't want to be living next to African Americans. So what we're seeing then is the changing of the narrative. Once the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants uproot, leave the city, and start moving into these suburban communities, leaving behind uh, the city, the cities are no longer cities set on a hill. They are now um, Babylon's. And uh, one of the indications of this, if we go to slide number 11, one of the indications of this is that there was this huge uh, uh, increase in building spending when the, at the height of white flight. So the height of white flight is actually in the 1940s forward. After World War II, uh, many uh, white Americans get uh, the GI Bill and they're able to move to these suburban tracks outside of the city. Uh, that, those... Uh, opportunities were denied African-Americans. So the money that was available for GIs coming back from the war, most of that money went towards white families who were able to move out to the suburbs and be a part of this white flight. What you see in 1945, is according to Winthrop Hudson, is that, and these are uh, adjusted according to times. Uh, So these are, uh, in 1945, $26 million was spent on all the new church buildings uh, in the United States at the time. Now, you know, these days, one church will spend that on one building. But in the entire U.S., for new building projects, $26 million was spent. Look by 1960, $1 billion. In a 15-year time frame, you, you exponentially increase the amount of money being spent on new buildings. Now, where are these buildings being built? Not in the city, but in the suburbs where the white flight has occurred. And they're moving out to the suburbs and building new buildings. That's why, as part of white flight, the number, amount of money jumps so high because you're building new buildings outside of the city. Those buildings remain. They get taken over by African-American churches, Latino churches, Asian churches, etc. But the white flight leads to this exponential growth of church, uh, church building usage, church building uh, funds uh, in that 15-year time period. Now, during that 15-year time period, the typical building that goes up between 1945-1960, actually well into the 1970s, is a building that looks like this. We go to the next slide. So you probably don't have this in, in Phoenix, but if you go to the Midwest and certain parts of the East Coast, and especially in the suburbs, you will probably see a sanctuary that looks like this. This is a newer building, but if your building was built in the 50s, 60s, and even into the 1970s, the sanctuary architecture looks like this. A slanted roof, a little bit of an arch on the side. How many of you have seen buildings like this? Yeah, more likely than not, 1960s, 70s, and uh, 70s architecture. Um, I was uh, about, I I must have been like 11 years old in the late 1970s at a church building that was being dedicated that looked exactly like this. And even as an 11-year-old, I knew this is a really stupid building. 
This just makes no sense. Even at the age of 11, I said, this is not a good idea. Now, again, you don't have this issue in Phoenix, but I was in a cold weather state. And if you have a cold weather state and you have a building that looks like the sanctuary, the heating vents are going to be along the floor, the baseboard. So where does all that wonderful warm air go on a cold January day? right up into the rafters. And so you literally have the frozen chosen on the ground and all this warm air up there. And then what do you have to do? You have to build ceiling fans to push down the warm air and then charismatics can't worship with you because they can't raise their hands in worship. So what you end up with is a very dysfunctional form of architecture for a church. And even then I knew at the age of 11, this is a stupid idea. Why would you build a church building to look like this? Well, the pastor gets up and says, it was my idea to build a church building to look like this. And he explains why. He says, I want you to imagine this entire building turned upside down. Let's go to the next slide. And he says, what do you think you're looking at if you're looking at this church building when it's upside down? He says, you're looking at the bottom of a ship, a bottom of a boat. And where in the Bible do you read about a really big boat? Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. Now think with me what you are saying when your building and your architecture is Noah's Ark, what are you saying to the world around you? We don't care what happens to you. You are Babylon. Let the judgment of God come and wipe you out as long as we are safe in Noah's Ark. And the idea behind that also is we're going to actually create a subculture that reflects the world out there, but it's going to be safe for us who are on this particular ark. So if the world has secular art, we will have Christian art. If the world has secular music, we will have our mediocre Christian music. If the world has secular clothing and t-shirts, we will have Christian t-shirts. The world has secular underwear, we'll have Christian underwear. Secular coloring books, Christian coloring books. So you end up with this kind of arc mentality of the church that says our goal is to have a little bit of, a, of the world out there, but in under our control as long as we're safe in Noah's Ark, and then also our children will be safe in Noah's Ark. Now, how do you do evangelism out of an ark? Very poorly. Very poorly. What happens is uh, Uncle Joe floats by, and of course you love Uncle Joe. He's family. He's your uncle. And you throw out a lifesaver, and you bring that individual out of the ark into your, into your ark. And it's great. Uncle Joe, you're going to love this. Uh, you know, you're, you, you're going to fit right in. We have all the foods you like, uh, all the stuff you like. We have on this ark, and we're so thankful you're here. You're one of us. You're going to fit right in on this ark. But then a neighbor floats by, and you think for a minute, wait a minute, didn't he borrow my mower a week ago? And he never really gave it back, did he? And also, your neighbor is a, of a different race, different culture. And you're starting to think for a little bit that if we bring them onto this ark, we might have to change some things on our ark. We might not, you know, we, we like the one three clapping. He might like two four. And that's going to really throw all of us off that, that we're clapping in different rhythm here. Um, you know, we, we bought huge vats of mayonnaise, but we didn't bring sriracha sauce. And this guy looks like he likes sriracha sauce. So we, we just have one bottle. It's not going to last the whole time on this ark. So you start developing excuses to say, you know, he's really not going to fit on this ark. Maybe there's an ark down the street that's more for his kind of people. And so that's what evangelism becomes. In fact, what became the common way of doing evangelism in the 1960s forward, 1970s forward, with this kind of onslaught of this kind of approach to, uh, <coughs> approach to church, is the homogenous unit principle. 
And that became the norm by which we began to build churches in the, uh, in the latter part of the 20th century. Uh, but I raise this. The goal then is not to run away and hide. Now I raise this. No, I'll stop here. We're not going to get to the second point. Uh, but I raise this. Um, if we can go to slide number 15. Because the same kind of change we saw uh, that I described in the 19th and 20th century is the same level and type of change we're seeing in the 20th, late 20th and early 21st century. And it is represented by two similar things. Immigration patterns and also kind of a fear of the unknown. And the first of these is immigration patterns and the fear of these immigration patterns and how our city is changing, our neighborhoods are changing because of these immigration patterns. So most of you know the story. In 1965, there was a change in immigration laws. Uh, what most people don't get is that in 1965 did not mean you threw open the doors and you had unlimited immigration. You actually don't, we've never had that over the last 50 plus years. What changed in 1965 is that prior to 1965, there were strict laws about who could come into the U.S. The first of these laws was called the Chinese Exclusion Act. Can anybody guess what that did? Yeah, they were pretty explicit about this. There was no hiding their intention here. The Chinese Exclusion Act excluded Chinese people. So there was no hiding this very explicitly racist uh, in, uh, uh, co commitment to say we don't want certain people in our country. We're going to control immigration. That was the first of those acts, but there was a series of acts like that which said we will not have immigrants come from these parts of the world, mainly Asia, Africa, and Latin America. We want immigrants to come from Europe. And so that was the pattern in 1965. 1965 did not say we have 200,000 immigrants in 64. Now we're going to have 2 million immigrants in 65. That has never happened. It has been small increases by 5,000, 10,000 per year. But we have never happened, have had unfettered, unlimited immigration in the last 50 plus years. What happened in 65 is that if the majority of immigrants in 64 were whites from Europe, from Europe in 65, you had more immigrants now from Latin America, Asia, and Africa. And that's where in the last uh, 60 plus years, we've seen this huge 50 plus years, huge influx of immigrants from uh, uh, Asia and Latin America. But again, it's not unlimited immigration. It is still controlled immigration. In fact, um, uh, I've, I was part of a Filipino church for a number of years where our church worshiped with a Filipino congregation. And if you are a Filipino in the Philippines applying through the traditional means of entry into the United States and you apply for that, you're on a waiting list that takes up to 25 to 35 years to come into the U.S. So again, this is not this unlimited, anybody can come in. There have always been strict borders around immigration for the last, actually for a long time. 1965 did not open the doors to say, now we're going to take 2 million immigrants a year. It actually said, now we're kind of adjusting the immigrants that we will take. It doesn't have to be just from Europe. It can be from Asia, Latin America, and Africa. But because of that even slight change, it leads to a slow, steady influx of non-European immigrants into the United States. Again, my, my emphasis there is slow, steady. Uh, but it also has a birth rate component to it. Because as immigrants come into the U.S., like my family, I came to the U.S. when I, uh, just after I turned six years old, um, my, my, my sisters and I grow up in the U.S., and then our kids are born in the U.S. So not only do you have immigration, you have subsequent generations that have children that become a part of American society and are U.S. citizens. So by 1965, I'm sorry, 2008, a third of the U.S. was already of non-European descent. 
So we've already crossed a pretty major threshold. Uh, the most major threshold that I want to pay attention to is 2011, where half the children born, newborns in 2011, were of non-European descent. That is a major, major threshold. And it will not go below 50. Uh, for, uh, it, it, there's no way it's going below 50 just because of birth patterns and birth rates. Now, it makes sense then that if 2011, half your children born, half the newborns are of non-European descent, that five years later, the incoming kindergarten class is going to be half of non-European descent. It makes sense. Five years later, you have an incoming class. So you can see how 2015 and 2011 are directly related to one another, where you have a birth rate and a kindergarten rate that changes. And then the, that, of course, means that in 2023, half of all the children in the United States are going to be of non-European descent, anybody under the age of 18. So you're seeing kind of things speed up a little bit, right? Because you're getting more... Uh, young children born at a faster rate. And so now you're getting these numbers, 2011, 2015, 2023, and that leads to the 2042 number, which says that within a very few uh, years, half of all of Americans are going to be of non-European descent, not just the children, but all America. So what I'm pointing to here is that the browning of America, the diversity of America, is not due to immigration it's due to birth rates. Uh, in fact, this is, I don't know why this is contended because these are actual facts. If we go to the next slide. The Pew Foundation, that's a conservative think tank. It actually has some Christian roots there. They do a lot of work on, on Christian research. They found that from 2009 to 2014, in a five-year period, the net immigration from Mexico was below zero. So there isn't like this massive influx, the, the very deceptive pictures of people rushing for the border and trying to cross the Rio Grande. That doesn't exist because the immigration is actually a net zero immigration. We're lose, we lost over a five-year period 140,000 Mexican immigrants into the United States. They went back to Mexico. So you remember the first time the whole issue of immigration came up like 15 years ago, maybe even longer than that? The number we kept hearing was there are 10 to 12 million illegal, uh, undocumented immigrants in the United States. There are 10 to 12 million of, you know, what, what, what are we going to do with this problem? 15, 20 years later, what's the number? 10 to 12 million. 10 to 12 million. So we have not had this explosion. Now, there are some kind of people with no facts, alternative facts creation that says there are 20 million, 40 million, 50 million. There's 6 billion illegal immigrants in the United States. Those are not true. All the statistics point that over the last 15 plus years, we had 10 to 12 million undocumented immigrants. We still have 10 to 12 undocumented immigrants. We do not have these millions of people rushing for the border, crossing the border. Uh, that is kind of the image that people have. So immigration, let's go back to the next previous slide. Uh, the browning and the changing of American society, again, is not due to immigration. It's due to birth rates. So let's think for a moment. I, I don't want to build a wall anymore. I want to build a dome. Let's build a dome that hermetically seals the United States of America. We'll get Canada to pay for it. Let us hermetically seal the United States of America. And if we're successful in building this dome around America, we still will have a diverse America. That will not change because, again, it's not due to immigration. It's tied to birth rates. That's why when I present this material, I said. To people, you still want to spend $35 billion on a wall that's not going to change what you really want to change. We're talking about an extraordinary diversity that is already in the works. No matter what we do, it's going to remain the same.
So now we have to deal with this reality. Deal with the reality of a changing American cultural dynamic and demographics. How are we going to deal with it? One of the first responses to this changing demographic was fear. And fear especially by white Christians towards this changing demographic. It is best reflected not actually in a white Christian's work, but in a Buddhist scholar's work at Harvard University. Her name was Diana Eck in the 1970s. She was given a million dollars to spend on research on the changing face of American religion. I don't know what she did with a million, probably a lot of that fancy dinners, but it was not spent on research because every one of her founders has turned out to be completely wrong. It's just not, just doesn't make any sense anymore. Her, her thesis was, the more immigrants we get into the U.S. in the 1970s forward, the less Christian American society will become. Because these immigrants are going to be Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and Shinto and all these other Jains, all these other religions. And yes, it is true, 30 years ago in your neighborhood, you did not have a Buddhist temple. And you do have a Buddhist temple in your neighborhood now. But what people ignore is not that one Buddhist temple. Everybody's concerned about that Buddhist temple. What you ignored are the 20 Korean churches that started at the same time, the 15 Chinese churches that started at the same time, the five Vietnamese churches that started at the same time, the five Laotian churches, five Hmong churches. You ignore these 50 new church plants that have started because you're so focused on that one Buddhist temple. And so the changing face of America, as exemplified here, is not the death of Christianity in America. I argue it is the saving of Christianity in America. Stephen Warner, in an article, uh, in, a, in, a, in several of his works, writes that we are not seeing the de-Christianization of America. We are seeing the de-Europeanization of American Christianity. Do you notice the difference there? So we're not becoming less of a Christian nation. The face of Christianity in America is changing. So we're dealing with not a problem, but actually a joy. So my argument has been that if you really want to see the flourishing of Christianity in America, you probably should let more immigrants in not less, because that opens the possibility for uh, the strengthening of the church in America, not the weakening of the church in America. The other side of this is the fear issue that I talked about earlier, uh, which is the fact that, um, yes, there are a significant number of Christians coming in, but there are also non-Christians who are coming into the U.S. But this is another angle and a chance for the church to be the church, not only to affirm God is working by bringing immigrants and their Christian faith among the immigrants, but also God is bringing immigrants to which we can actually share the gospel. So I'll give you the example of this, and then we'll open up for Q&A. Um, I'm at an age where about 25 years ago, I was in seminary and in college. I went to a lot of missions conferences, Urbana. Uh, there was a kind of a mission conference every year, especially in seminary. We had a lot of prayer meetings, and I had a phenomenal missions professor who led uh, some really good readings into mission work. Uh, and I remember reading a lot and praying a lot and hearing a lot of Christian mission conferences uh, about uh, communism, about the Iron Curtain. And we were praying quite a bit in the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s, but most specifically in the 70s and 80s, about praying for how the gospel could go into the Soviet Union, China, the Eastern Bloc. Now, what I remember is that God actually answered those prayers. Amen? Right? God answered those prayers because the Iron Curtain did fall and the gospel did go into the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc and into China. In my last year in seminary, my missions professor was an Eastern European. And so we're talking about this massive transition. Uh, this is disputed, I understand, but there's some evidence that shows that the most Christian nation in terms of raw numbers is not the United States. 
Anybody know what might be the most Christian neighbor in terms of raw numbers? The actual number of Christians in one country. What country is it? China. Yeah. Uh, the official state numbers is 30 million Christians in, in China. That's actually only those that attend the official state churches. That's what they count. And these are the people who go to the three self churches in, the, in China. But they're not counting the underground churches, which is phenomenal. I mean, the high number end of it is that there are probably 240, 250 million Christians in China right now. Most of that attributable to the underground churches. Um, now, in the U.S., we have 310, 320 million people. Not all of us are Christians, despite what people say. So in, in terms of actual numbers of Christians, China might have more Christians than the United States does right now. Now, what's interesting, though, is that this was an answer to prayer, a decade-long prayer effort by American and Western Christians to pray for these communist nations, and God indeed answered our prayers, so much so that mission conferences began to switch their prayer topics. So we stopped having prayer conferences and books and, uh, and a whole bunch of mission conferences on reaching the communist bloc. We started praying for what part of the world? The Muslim world. The last 10, 20 years, there has been, and I think in a good way, more than 20 years now, uh, a concerted effort for American evangelicals to pray for the Muslim world. There was a huge number of books that started coming out on how to reach the Muslim world. There were a huge number of texts that talked about uh, the, the kind of the, uh, the, the unreached people group of the Muslim world. So we've been praying as an American evangelical movement for 20 plus years for God to allow us to share the gospel with the Muslim world. Which is why I cannot understand when God answers our prayers and brings 20,000 Middle Eastern folks who we never would have had a chance to share the gospel with. We weren't going to Syria and Iraq. We weren't moving there anytime soon. But God said, I'm going to bring 20,000 who are going to be your neighbors. And if every church adopted one family, actually in the number of churches, if 10 churches adopted one family, those 20,000, we could have the amazing testimony of the churches transforming the lives of 20,000 Muslim families. Think about the power of that testimony. So why is it that evangelicals are at the front line of the Muslim ban? Why is it that evangelicals are the ones saying, these are the exact people we don't want? That makes no sense to me. So we can run away and hide, we can quit and give up, or we can say this is the exact time for which God's people have been raised up for such a time as this. Let me open it up for question and answer. I went, wow, much longer than I thought I was going to go. Go ahead. Anyone with questions, I'll bring you the mic. Let, let me give you a, a question to start with. Um, does it sound like I'm speaking into a bucket? That's just my natural voice. Um, so what would you say in the midst of all this context um, that, that we're talking about, in the midst of 2017, it looks like to lead the church in in lament. What yeah. should we be lamenting? What does that look like? Yeah, so lament um, allows for the unheard voices to speak. Hmm. Uh, this is the work of Brueggemann and a number of other kind of Old Testament scholars. One of the most powerful things about lament is that it empowers the disempowered. It empowers the, dis uh, the voices that are the voiceless. Um, and I'll talk about it more tonight at the, at the church, but um, I argue that Lamentations is probably the most feminine book of the Bible. Uh, and there's questions about authorship. Who wrote the book of Lamentations? I'm not going to get into the complexity of it. But essentially what Jeremiah does 
uh, even though he is a person of privilege, uh, a prophet who can read or write, and others in that community would not have been able to once the exile occurred, he gets out of the way in the book of Lamentations and elevates especially the voice of women uh, because they were the ones that suffered the most at the time of, uh, of Lamentations. Uh, so what you, what you see is this privileged person who makes an effort and realizes that the most important voices in this time of crisis is actually the voices of women, the voices of the hurting, the voices of the marginalized, the voices of the oppressed. And so I think one of the things that the church can do, especially churches of privilege, uh, who have a, a great deal of success, uh, financial security, uh, political, economic security, social and cultural security, those churches are the ones that should be at the front line saying, part of the discipline of lament means that I speak out for the voices that have been uh, marginalized and, and silenced. So that's what the thing about discipline of lament is. It allows for, or it actually challenges the privileged church to raise up the voices of the marginalized and the voiceless. Yeah. So the first step for many is to read the lament psalms as part of the scripture reading. And I, I think that's a great entry point. Uh, or to look for, for example, certain types of worship songs that speak more about lament. I do think that the study that I did two years ago I don't know if much has changed in terms of the usage of lament in contemporary worship. I will say I think I'm seeing more lament songs written now than ever before. So that's actually, I think, a very positive movement. So there are opportunities for us in our kind of collective worship life uh, to introduce lament more intentionally. Uh, the songs that we sing, uh, the, uh, the passage of scriptures that we read, even what we preach on, kind of moving away from this triumphalism towards this narrative of suffering. Um, I would also argue that uh, lament should not just be seen as an introduction into the worship life, but into the whole life of the church. So how do small groups lament more? Now, at that point, you don't need to you know, have everybody read a lament. Uh, one of the things that I'm actually going to do with my, with my group of uh, those who are walking through and, and, uh, the have everybody write a lament. So that's a great small group activity. Uh, to, and then I can give, and, and uh, the fifth chapter of my book talks about a kind of a standard format of lament that's in the scriptures. Uh, <laughs> I wrote it two years ago, so it's not off the top of my head. It's in the book. It gives you kind of four or five characteristics. And it, it's a great starting point for individuals to start writing that lament. So I think that action of kind of um, not just in the Sunday service, uh, which is a great lead-in, uh, how does that work in prayer meetings? How does that work in small groups? So I think it would be more important maybe to transition that into the whole life of the church, not just kind of making its appearance. Now, most of us know that the uh, pastors, that Sunday service still shapes the culture of the church oftentimes. So what are the ways that you can reintroduce this discipline in the church? Um, I think what I've seen is when, especially when tragedy strikes, it's a great place to introduce that. Uh, in fact, the time that the lament genre of writing among Christians actually hit a few extra books uh, was after 9-11. And the faculty of Princeton, uh, a couple of other authors did a number of works on lament just coming on the heels of 9-11. Uh, and so these kind of tragic moments are places. And um, I know uh, I spoke at a church right, I was in Orlando uh, right after the tragedy that occurred there uh, and was able, and the whole, and the church that I was speaking at really made it a service of lament. Uh, so these kinds of moments of tragedy, I think, are moments that we reintroduce that discipline. What I would caution is that oftentimes when we have these moments of lament, we want to put a nice little loop at the end of it, right, and close it up. I would say it's okay to leave that little bit of, of, of a lack of closure 
and that lament goes forward, not just from that moment. Uh, so that's kind of a place where people don't walk away with that one happy song at the end, but to actually close in a prayer. That's the way, by the way, the book of Lamentations closes. It does not close with a happy note. It actually closes with still wondering if God is there. And I think many... Many of our church members actually feel that way, but aren't, aren't given permission to feel that way because they want to have kind of a nice, happy closure to this. So what are the ways that we can not just introduce lament, but make it a pattern and, and part of the practices of our church? Uh, one side note, um, if you're on Facebook, I'm leading a group on Facebook through Lent, uh, through my, both my book and the book of Lamentations. So we're reading Lamentations and then reading excerpts from my book. Uh, and so if you are on, on Facebook, uh, Prophetic Lament During Lent is the uh, name of the Facebook group. You can join. You can look from my Facebook page and then link from there. Uh, but it will give uh, a kind of a different perspective, um, a couple of questions through the 40 days, and we're going to look at the passages of Lamentations, um, a couple of uh, clips of talks that I've given, as well as some insights from the book uh, on, on lament. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it should be both and, right? So, um, uh, and Brueggemann talks about this quite a bit, that um, when you are in the practice of lament as a worship life and as a prayer life, um, it should become so ingrained that it creates what you're describing, this kind of discomfort and disease, that there's got to be more, right? Um, so as you are introducing the voices of the voiceless, then folks will begin to say, wow, what can we do to, 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 to move in that? Um, so I think, um, and part of that is kind of a corporate lament, not just the individual lament. Uh, so one of the beautiful things about uh, Lamentations is that it's a corporate lament, but it's an individual that usually offers it on behalf of the group of the uh, city. And that's Jeremiah. He kind of offers an individual. So there's a lot of I words, but it's actually reflecting the feelings of the whole community. Uh, so how do you shift from that individual lament to a corporate lament? And then how does that corporate lament become corporate action? So those are the dots that I think would need to be connected. So if you're feeling, you know, to your congregation, if you're feeling this dis-ease about the injustice in the world, where do we move towards the justices in the world? So, I mean, um, that's the tough part, I think, uh, because you're always trying to mobilize your church members. Right? You're always trying to get them to, I mean, you know, it's hard enough getting them to put chairs away after, <laughs> after service. How are you going to get them to go out and work, you know, volunteer at a soup kitchen or, or you know, maybe march for, uh, against, you know, those are things that are a next step forward. Um, I do look at it as an a, a, a expression of discipleship. Uh, that if I'm really committed to the whole uh, discipleship of my congregants, uh, and if I'm not introducing lament and the external expressions of lament, then as a pastor, I'm failing to disciple well. So that's the other way I would look at it and say, in the same way, after you pray for forgiveness, you, you know, we ask, hey, go and extend forgiveness to your husband, your wife, to your children, to your parents, etc. Uh, hey, as we're asking for God to intervene in the midst of this, the broken world uh, through lament, what are the things that we go, go for? I mean, that's kind of the next extension of discipleship in this. Yeah, I mean, you know, on my most optimistic days, I think there's a way for back. On my most pessimistic days, I, I, I'm not. Um, now, we, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of painting in broad strokes. Um, I don't believe anymore that all evangelicals oppose immigration and refugees. I think that is the dominant narrative that's out there. And accurately so if we're looking at the voting patterns and if we're looking at, you know, uh, what percentage uh, 
in terms of uh, the polls of who supports this uh, executive order, who does not. So what we are seeing is that um, for a number of different reasons, uh, white evangelicals, to be more specific, are seen as the bedrock of this kind of movement. Um, so we do need to deal with that reality. We can't avoid it. You know, that's, that narrative is out there. Um, I do think what we need to do is provide an alternative narrative to say, actually, no, there are. And I, I'm, I'm, and I think that that's, that is out there as well. We need to, and that's kind of, you know, as the media portrayal is, the easiest narrative is white evangelical supposes immigration versus actually, no, there are a number of churches that are doing amazing things for immigration, for refugees. Um, but it's tough when you see something like a, a wonderful evangelical organization like World Relief, uh, their funding is getting cut, their you know, opportunities, their donations, are, I mean, all sorts of stuff that indicate uh, this amazing Christian organization that has done, uh, as many of you know, great work among immigrants and refugees are kind of declining in its, in its impact because of a lot of the, the climate that's out there now. So can we create that alternative narrative as a Christian community? Uh, are, the odds are against us, sadly, but at the same time, we can actually be part of some of that change to demonstrate, um, actually, that's not what the church is about. Um, and so I think the more we can do to demonstrate an alternative narrative, the more that will spread within the community as well. And also, I mean, we've got to think locally. On a national level, these numbers can be skewed. But if we think locally, um, and so we can say, yes, on a national level, X number of evangelicals you know, oppose immigration and, and oppose the uh, refugees. But in this church, in your neighborhood, this is who we are. And we've tried to do them in my family as a, as a family. We live in a very diverse neighborhood. We have, a, we live in a corner, uh, a Trump supporter on one side, a Jewish rabbi, Orthodox Jewish rabbi, and a Muslim family. <laughs> God bless America. That's, that's us right there. Uh, and then a, an evangelical Asian family. Um, so we're trying to figure out ways that we can offer hospitality to uh, the Muslim family across the street. They've become very dear friends of ours. Um, my daughter goes to a very diverse high school, uh, and when she had her um, a birthday party right after the elections, uh, there were a number of, of kids who wore their hijabs because that's, that's their tradition. Uh, and they were in our home, and, and, and a number of our, our friends are undocumented, and they were in our home, and we want to communicate to their parents, this is a safe space. Uh, and they know we're Christian. They know I, I teach at North Park, which is an evangelical school right down the street. And so in that local area, I think we can do maybe even more of an impact of demonstrating God's love than maybe some of the, the heat that's generated on the national level. All right, we are... You got a question? <laughs> we were going to shut it down, but Danae has the privilege, <laughs> so you got it. Well, I was going to ask, I didn't, I didn't hear this question. Yeah, boy, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, and one, I, I'm going to hesitate on, on giving an easy answer because I don't know the situations you're in in your local churches. I know, um, and I haven't been the pastor for about 10 years, but I know the pressures of a pastor trying to kind of walk through this very sensitive space. Um, and there are different issues at different times. Uh, and I've been in contexts where, uh, um, where I've been asked to speak at a church a couple of years ago, and I was addressing issues related to Black Lives Matter, and it became a controversy. Uh, and I ended up kind of being able to walk away from it because I was guest preaching. But that poor pastor had to deal with it for several months after I left. Uh, so I want to avoid that kind of problem. Redemption, I'm, I'm going to try to avoid that kind of problem at your church. So I, I definitely am trying to empathize. And I'm saying that I do empathize with this very 
difficult space that many pastors occupy. Um, I, there wasn't a study, but anecdotally, I'll say that pastors probably voted differently than the congregation as a whole uh, in terms of evangelical Christians voting in significant numbers for one candidate and pastors actually uh, not voting for that candidate, whatever form that might have been, sitting it out or voting for uh, alternative candidates. Um, so what we're dealing with then is this uh, this very tough space. Uh, I would look at it from a couple of places, um, and this is where kinda, I think pastors kinda have to work through that themselves. I think uh, if it were me because of my conviction, I would have to say um, I can't waver from these commitments and being public about it, uh, and that if if it means a loss then, okay, this is my personal conviction. I, I'm not saying that anybody else should feel that way. Um, that, uh, even if it means a loss in offering and loss in, in congregants, um, that um, that commitment to the poor and the, and the refugees and the alien immigrant among us uh, supersedes that. So I think that would be my kind of personal conviction and say um, I, would, I would still have to stand before God and be able to say, you know, I stood true to your word and true to your calling. Now, but that's my calling because my calling has been to speak and advocate for justice. Um, and I can understand, though, those who are saying, um, I want to make sure that these individuals who might leave are not lost, right? Um, but then with that, I would issue the challenge, okay, then what does it mean to disciple that community for the next four years, right? Uh, what does it mean to teach Scripture to help Sunday schools um, uh, lead these individuals towards a much more thoughtful and reflective and uh, empathetic, sympathetic Christianity. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, if you're, if you're going to make these kinds of choices, then follow up on these choices. So if you're going to say, look, I'm committed to uh, God's call to care for the alien among us, uh, and I'm going to have to, I'm going to pay a price for it, but I'm going to actually commit to that. Um, I'm committed to my congregation in such a way that these issues might not be what I speak about right now, but there is a commitment you're making, in my mind. You're making a commitment that discipleship of these individuals and these communities are so important that you might set aside the rhetoric for now, but you're committed to disciple them in such a way that you can present them as a pastor, as one who is shaped in the image of Christ. So... Um, I think I completely empathize and sympathize with those who are in these very awkward places. Um, and, and even the choice to say, for this time, I'm going to pull back on some of this, this uh, conversation. It does not absolve you for the next four years to continue to teach, develop, disciple these individuals so that they might make different decisions in the next four years again this is not a political i'm not saying who to vote for i'm just saying kind of the mindset and the discipleship that is necessary for them to think in terms of biblical theological values rather than secular political values so that kind of discipleship is really um, the burden that those of you who, who again I, I i would affirm that choice if you make that choice but you're also committing to the discipleship of these individuals who might have left uh, and how those individuals would get discipled. Well, as we close up, I just want to thank you. Can we give Dr. Vaughn a hand? Um, just as sort of a benedictory note, um, we know that these are heavy things to talk about and are weighing on many of us. And the world wants to 
make us make a decision about whether we're going to draw our identity from the way of the donkey or the way of the elephant, our allegiance, our identity. And we know that to do either of that is a conversion. It's to bow your knee to something else than Christ. But also what's really tempting to us right now is the way of the ostrich, to uh, avoid all hard things and put our heads in the sand because it's safe. But the, what we know in our heart of hearts, what the Spirit is saying to us when we open up the Word, is that we are to follow the way of the Lamb, the suffering Savior who poured himself out for us, and we pour ourselves out for others. God, give us wisdom for that. We need your help. Uh, we need your courage. We need um, you to actually help us understand our own hearts, our own fears, uh, because uh, we, we need to help other people do the same. And not to, to stuff them, um, but to, to cry out, to cry out to you. And so, God, we pray that you would give us uh, just a deep obsession with you, with the gospel, and that it would, be, it would transform us and that we would um, um, be able to be communities that put that in display uh, on a very complicated world. We pray that you, Jesus, the great Lamb of God, would be lifted up. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everyone.